Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. It is January 29th, 2023, 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. This is Buddy Buscemi. I'm here with my friend Bill Stegel for GTP Keeper Radio. We're going to do some Chondro history tonight. Are you ready, Bill? Man, I'm super stoked for this one. This one, you know, we've done a lot of episodes uh, in the past, very few historical episodes. We've, uh, you know, we had, we've had Trooper on and we've had Greg Maxwell on. Um, those are really the only two over the last many, many years that I can think of that, uh, that focused, uh, really mostly on, on green tree history. So super excited about this one. Um, yeah, can't wait. Yeah. I mean, either, uh, sometimes it's good to take a little. A little look back to see just how far we've come, and I think that's what we're going to uh, do over uh, – Bill, this is going to be two episodes, so it's going to be part one this evening, and we'll be back with part two in the near future. So we're going to take a significant look back. We have a couple guys with us um, that I think uh, really are knowledgeable in a lot of the topics that we want to discuss, and, and we'll be able to maybe navigate us through the conversation better so than maybe I can or you or you can Bill what do you think about that yeah you know when we kind of had this idea for the show there were really two really three people three or four people came to mind immediately um to to participate in this these two guys were at the top of the list um we both have known them for such a long time and know we know what they know And, you know, I think it's really, it's going to be great. I think one of the things that separates our community from a lot of the other reptile communities is our history. And the fact that we value our history, you know, a lot of us believe we should pay homage to our history. Uh, Most of our founding fathers were really good people um, and propagated knowledge without, you know, with clear, um, you know, inside, they didn't hold things back. They were very transparent. And you can't say that in a lot of the other, um, a lot of the other reptile communities. So, you know, I think that was one of the things that separates us. We're very passionate about lineage. And I think if you want to consider yourself a member of the green tree community, you have to have some basic green tree history knowledge. You know, I just think it really, you know, if you're going to be an ambassador to our little, group and our club, 
you've got to you've got to have some basics. And so tonight is, is a great show to learn that if you don't already know it. I agree with everything you said, Bill. Do, do awesome. you have any uh, collection updates you want to share? Or? Yeah, why don't why don't you go first? Since you're, I think you're about three to six months ahead of me in in the season. Why don't you go first? <laughs> um, I, I did. Uh, I've paired. I did five pairings this season, which is about the same number I usually do, and it looks like um, all of them have. Taken. We have. I have uh, two clutches in the incubator right now, and I'm waiting on uh, three other females to lay eggs, and hopefully they're going to lay nice, healthy, fertile eggs that I can put in the incubator and uh, finish up with those guys. Hopefully, and then right about that time, it's going to uh, be time to maybe pair a diamond, do a diamond pairing or two <laughs> this year. So. And then that that'll Man, be it for the breeding uh, season for me this year. Yeah, that's um, you know anything can happen, and we always talk very pessimistically about uh, green tree pairings and clutches, uh, just because we know how um, pessimistic we should be. But that you you could be a very busy man in the spring Good if you day. have five clutches of green green trees. That's um, that's yeah. that's a that's like full-time work you know it could be i do know this person that lives in texas though um <laughs> and he is a full-time snake guy so he he might be able to help me out with with something i'm not sure i haven't talked to him about it yet I, but i might bring that up in a conversation oh, with him sometime soon i think i remember that uh guy volunteering to uh help out if needed because you've certainly helped that guy out in the past. So to be determined. To be determined. Well, I wish you luck. Um, my my uh, pairings are similar. You know, we have, of course, that joint pairing, which is probably the, the pairing that I'm looking forward to the most. You were able to get a sickness offspring male to successfully hopefully successfully produce this year i'm super super stoked about that uh of course um and then i've got five other females that have uh, either ovulated or have shown consistent pairing including the second sickness offspring that had just literally started uh breeding for the first time last week that'll be my last uh last pairing so yeah i i've I I paired four females last year and got four clutches. Got six uh, pairs going this year. Don't expect to get six clutches, of course, um, but hopefully, you know, right. get some eggs, eggs and projects on the ground. Man, fingers crossed for both of us. Yeah, time will tell. It's uh, so far, it's been good. Good, good. And you're getting a little bit of winter weather down there. I told you before we started, um, it's cold as balls down here. I don't like this shit. It's <laughs> it's 27 degrees, and I'm not cut out for it. Okay. Did, but it did you make, have to do any special preparation? Uh, no. 
No, okay. not at all. Just hope, just hope uh, the you know the power stays on and keep my fingers crossed for that. All right, right. should we bring our guests on? Yeah, let's let's do it. I was just going to say before you introduce them that, you know, we're always super grateful when people take the time to come on and, um, you know, do an episode of GTP Keeper Radio. There's a lot of time and a lot of um, commitment involved in preparing for the episode, I'm sure. But these two guys – you know, I think went above and beyond. I know all week these guys have been putting a lot of time on archives and magazine, pulling out old and dusting off old magazines and really wanting to have a really good, factual, uh, informative show tonight. So I'm just uh, super thankful for the time that these two guys have put in this week. I agree. So, Matt Morris and Patrick Holmes, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for having us. Hey, Matt. You're welcome, Matt. So, Matt, why, you've been a guest here before, but it's been a while. So why don't you just briefly uh, introduce yourself, tell us uh, what you do and how you're entangled in uh, the, the Condor world. Okay, I'll do that. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've been on. Um, so I've been uh, keeping and breeding reptiles for about 45 years now, I guess. It's <laughs> been a while. Um, Damn. I started, uh, I started uh, following the MVF um, in about 2005, um, and just I happened to come across it, and it was they just intrigued me a lot. And then... Um, I guess my, my first green tree I got was uh, from a friend of mine who has passed away, but uh, Andrew Amon gave me my first chondro in 2007. And uh, like any good, any good drug dealer, the first one was free, and uh, <laughs> it was all downhill. From there. Gotcha. And so, uh, 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 Matt, what, what, what is the MVF? Uh, the Morelia Veritas Forum. Uh, it was a place where okay. uh, fellow condor heads could get together and and talk shop. I'm Thank gonna you. T- I, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something very interesting that happened to me today. I got a message from Greg Schroeder today on Facebook. Really? So did I. I don't know how he. You did. So maybe he heard about this yeah. show or this episode, but I sent him a message nine years ago on Facebook, <laughs> nine years, and he returned the message today. Yep, same with me. He, he said, "He said, yeah, I don't, I don't check this account very often. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> nine, nine years ago. Holy shit. Wow. Right. Yeah. You know, Bill, I think, I think we may have chatted with him about, uh, potentially coming on the show that long ago and um, that yeah. I think we maybe initially have reached out to him through Facebook and I think we may have got him uh, yep. through like a personal email address and it's funny how the timing of of that worked out. 
Well, I I don't remember if he is uh, in the lineup for Condro history in in our two part series, but if he's not, he should be, or or at least honorably mentioned. He sure. he is he is in, he is in okay, our, our uh, discussion list. Good, good, excellent. I think Patrick may have joined us as well. Yeah, Patrick looks like he's here. Hi, Patrick. Okay, Patrick. Patrick just maybe have a little bit of issue joining us, um, and so yeah, we we lost Patrick again. So that's okay. Um, he'll he'll try to come back and join us. So another person, I mean, Patrick is also one of those folks who, um, if you, I mean, even Bill, you'll even know this when our, from our discussion uh, that we were having online earlier this week, I brought up an animal and, uh, you know, Patrick and, and Matt were within, you know, within the two minutes, they, they knew the idea of the animal that I was re- referencing. Um, and so they, they both really know they they're, have expert uh, knowledge content on the subject, and uh, hopefully, uh, I know I'm going to learn a lot on this episode. Ab- absolutely, yeah, absolutely. These guys are they've been in it. Uh, these guys are really second generation, you know, and you're second generation too, buddy. You know, as far as the founding right. fathers go. So these guys, and even yourself. Uh, you know, they literally witnessed this stuff as it was happening. Um, you know, they were probably, uh, you know, maybe young keepers at the time or just getting into it. But these guys saw what the founding fathers were doing, and they were probably highly motivated, you know, by these guys like like Trooper and like Rico and Eugene Gasset and, you know, the handful of other people that we're going to talk about tonight. But, you know, you guys, you guys lived it as it was happening post and you know myself and people after me who probably didn't and are just you know interested in the history and so you know it's 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 really awesome to have these guys on absolutely yeah, is, absolutely is what's that yeah, patrick's a walking encyclopedia he's down packed yeah yeah, but you you are too, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna discover that here probably right now. And so I I would just say <laughs> let's get started. Let's get started, Matt. How, how do you want to start yeah, this? Um, I don't know where you want to jump in. I, you know, um, I, I got to dust the cobwebs off my my brain here. Uh, <laughs> some of the stuff, but uh, the, uh, the the uh, the yellow lines is, is obviously where I I had most of my focus. Uh, I'm not. I'm. I do know a little bit about some of the blue line stuff and and that stuff, but uh, the yellow lines were, were kind of my specialty. Okay. Why don't you uh, start with that? Like, how, how did the yellow line um, designer green trees begin? Well, um, I mean, there's several different lines. Um, I guess. Let me look at. Um, I think that. And we'll start off with the um, – sorry, I'm looking on my computer here. Uh, I guess I can start off with the OS high yellow line. Yeah, that's Eugene Bissett. 
that is Eugene Bissett. Uh, that's Ophiological Services uh, in Florida. Um, he was good friends with Trooper Walsh and Dr. Van Mirop, who were also kind of uh, our founding fathers in all this. Um, he he had lines uh, from both of them, other people as well, and a lot of really nice locale animals. So um, his his animals, you know, just covered the whole spectrum of things. But basically, his high yellow lines, I think, started three animals that originated uh, from John Hedger. And some of the pedigrees, it'll say uh, John Hedger or Mark Bell, unknown. And that kind of intrigued me. So I did a little bit of digging on that. And um, so basically, um, the three sisters came from um, a fellow head named John Hedger. And he, he got his from some... Uh, some private breeders in California. The the background on that's a little little uh, foggy about exactly where they came from, but some of, in those days some of it was. Uh, a lot of California uh, people were breeding chondros in the early days um, on a small scale. Um, so basically, he got three of these animals from. Um, I think it was Lloyd Lemke, I believe. And um, he got three, and two of the yellow meals turned to about females, and one uh, he named Mojo was the male. And uh, they were supposedly from different different uh, clutches, so they weren't related. Well, the two females were related, and the male wasn't, I believe is what he found out. Um, so he had those. Um, he had his clutch, hatched him out in a, one of those styrofoam uh, chicken incubators, um, and he sold uh, four or five babies to Mark Bell. And Mark Bell ended up sending, um, selling three of these to Eugene Bissett in 1993, and all those were females. Um, if you and Matt, can you, Matt, Matt, can yeah. you, I was going to say, can you go back to a can you go back to a locality or just unknown locality? Um, a lot of those, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think there was any kind of locality in the, in, from then. They, they didn't know it, um, where they came from. A lot of animals back then came from uh, Papua New Guinea, from the, the, the west side. Um, yeah. Of, um, before it closed down. Um, but, no, they were just um, – somebody, you know, got them in bred them, and then sold them to uh, Lloyd, or Lloyd had them as imports. I'm not sure exactly which. But like I and, said, and you know, it's hard to... Say again? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, were these babies, were they all yellow? Are these yellow babies that are, in you know, the, the, yeah. kind of the yeah. they, beginning they, they of the all yellow. OS? Yeah, no, all yellow. no maroon babies. Yep, all yellow. Okay. Um, but, you know, back then... Um, you know, things were coming in all over the place. And when I, I tried to um, be as accurate as possible when I was gathering this information, but, uh, you know, people, as they get older, you know, firsthand accounts uh, tend to, to fade <laughs> in the memory. Files get lost. 
pictures get lost. So it's uh, sometimes it's kind of, you know, it's hard to know what they actually can remember or not remember. So um, sure. it's a little dicey, the early stuff. Um, so if you're looking at the pedigrees, um, these three females were EB9351, 9350, and 9349. And uh, these, I think two of these, Produced animals. One of them didn't for some reason, um, but they are pretty much. Those are the females that are responsible for the, in my opinion, the start of the high yellow OS lines. And um, there was a male. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing I'm doing uh, numbers here because I don't I don't think they had a name at the time. Some of them do, some of them don't. But I'm I'm just using numbers. But um, the male who used um, the, the there was a combination that seemed to be more productive on high yellows than others. EB ninety one oh eight was the male that he used um, with those two females. Um, so in nineteen ninety four ninety five he used both those females with that male and uh, produced some really killer animals. Um, Eddie Athey's Jewel, uh, Greg Gibbs' Gordon, yeah. Greg, Greg Stevens mm-hmm. uh, had one, and Greg Maxwell's Buttermilk all came from that clutch. Uh, so oh, some okay. really, really nice stuff. Um, there's, there's more, obviously, but those are the ones that, that kind of stood out. Um, so with that, um, and that was 1993. In 95, for some reason – he decided to sell that mail, and he sold it to Tony Nikolai uh, at Awesome Arboreals. Um, and Tony renamed that TN9510. It was known as the Bassett Mail um, in honor of Eugene. Uh, I believe they were, they were acquaintances. I think they knew each other. Um, but that, it wasn't necessarily the end of the high yellows with that, but they weren't as um, they weren't as common. Um, they had another male that actually was produced by uh, Dr. Van Mirop, which is another one of the founding fathers. I think he was um, really instrumental in the uh, in the artificial incubation, um, the early parts of the art, artificial incubation uh, uh, learning. I guess he did a lot of research with it. So um, that animal produced. Um, let's see what what year was that? Oh, 1998. This is a little further to, uh, into the 90s, and uh, those two sisters were paired up with this male, uh, EB8801, and. Um, the offspring from that um, are some fairly famous um, high yellow animals. Uh, Vin Russo's Golden Maya, uh, Golden Maya Serpent, sorry. Greg Maxwell's Oz, Tom Phillips' Star, Mark Robinson's Splash, and Eddie Asti's Annie, uh, Anna, sorry. Um, Oz and Splash were very well known. Splash, um, 
was I have a lot of or I had a lot of lineage uh, from Splash. Uh, he was very his lineage was very good at producing high yellows. Um, so with that, I think that was the last of the OS line high yellow stuff coming from OS. It seems like so of all the designers, it seems like of all the designer stuff, the high yellow is, is like the most consistent, right? I mean, to me at least. Um, yes, I, I would say so. Um, they, they've been, the high yellow stuff has also been instrumental in trading um, some really, really nice designer stuff, you know, throughout the years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, were they the foundation for any other high yellow lineages that are existing today, or are they kind of uh, something that's kind of – are they in an historical line that kind of has been – doesn't exist anymore in, as a pure form? Well, um, they're, they're still out there. Um, a lot of that went to um, Tony Nikolai, and he was very um, trying to find my stuff here <laughs> on my notes. Um, it was he he bought a lot of um, stuff from Eugene and started his own bloodlines. Um, again, this is a part of the problem with with this history is that a lot of people would take the original owner's ID number and change it to their own. So a lot of the the uh, tracking these further on into the lineage is kind of difficult when they change the names. Um, I, I do that. So, I do that with buddies. I do that with buddies animals all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, it just makes it hard to track. <laughs> But um, yeah, they—I mean—they sold these, and uh, people got a hold of them, and um, really went to town with them. Um, give me a second. Bear with me. I'm looking for for my notes here. Okay, Patrick, are you back in? Can y'all hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I um experiencing te- technical difficulties over here. You sound good now, bud. Excellent. Excellent. That's what I like to hear. I, I don't know if you how much you listened to. We we just brought Matt on. Matt gave us a, uh, a brief history of himself, um, his involvement on uh, Green Trees, historical aspect. Um, we gave him the choice. What do you wanted to talk about first? And, and of course, he picked... Uh, High yellow lineage, which doesn't yeah. surprise any of us. Um, <laughs> yeah. So why don't why don't you take a second, uh, introduce yourself? I know we had a special guest, right? That's supposed to be coming on yeah. that was not announced, and I think he just came into the queue. Uh, I'll let awesome. Buddy handle that. Uh, what do you guys want to do? Do you want to bring him on now, and then we'll get Patrick, or what do you want to do, Buddy? But let's have Patrick introduce himself, and we'll bring the guest on, and he can he can get warmed up listening to Patrick. Sounds good. All right. 
Um, well, uh, first of all, I'd like to say that um, y'all may not know this, but I've probably bought more Condros from Matt Morris than any other individual out there. Um, <laughs> Matt and I did a lot of we we did a lot of a lot of deals back in the day. Did a lot of trade in and loans and all kinds of stuff. Um, I've I've been doing this thing with Matt for as, as long as I've been real serious about it. Um, so it go, goes back to 2008, 2009. Um, I have been I got my first green trees in '98, um, but I've been keeping them nonstop since 2006. Um, I got real serious about green trees in 2008 uh, and started really putting a, a collection together in 2009, started doing my first pairings in the end of 2009. And um, one of the first two females, the first one actually that I paired up, um, I got a clutch from in 2010. Um, got a 100% fertility, 100% hatch rate on my first clutch, and that has not happened again. Um, I've gotten some 100% <laughs> fertility. <laughs> I actually just recently had my first 100% hatch um, since then. Uh, so, you know, uh, 12 years later, but it was only three eggs. Um, still counts, damn it, but only, only three eggs. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, anyways, uh, but yeah, um, I, you know, I think most of the people listening know, you know, at least roughly who I am. I'm, um, ridiculously obsessed with green tree pythons and I, I don't know that I'm, uh, people might be surprised to hear this, but I don't know that how, how qualified I am for the earlier part of this episode. Um, I know I, I did hear in the very beginning, you guys mentioned there were some other guys that came to mind. And when I think about guys that know a lot about the the old school you know walsh and blue line and calico lineage the names that come to mind are sean and christian stewart and pedro and and john irby and um you know i remember talking to christian um well sean and christian back in the day and they just had all these pedigrees memorized they knew all of this yep, stuff going do. all the way back right off the top of their head and it was mind-blowing to me um, I will wow. be able to contribute a lot more on the subsequent episode when we get into talking about Rico stuff um, and uh, you know the some of the other lines that we we said we were going to bring up the Vinsky and Prada and Colorado Condro stuff. Um, so uh, I'll I'll say two things real quick before we look at the other guest. Um, number one, Matt briefly mentioned Dr. Van Mirop. If we don't get to it again, I'd like to add that he was, I believe, a cardiologist, and um, was he and yeah, Eugene correct. and Trooper all got together originally on the phone, but to to study uh, maternal incubation in green tree pythons. Um, Van Mirop had done a lot of work with berms and ball pythons on maternal incubation, and really intensive stuff. He was looking at like the amount of oxygen, the, like the increase in oxygen that they take in during maternal incubation and things like that. Like it, it wasn't just like watching snakes incubate eggs. And um, they, through monitoring temperatures 
of maternally incubating chondros, they developed their techniques and, and temperature techniques for artificial incubation. Um, and we can get more into that later if you want. You guys want to hear about the actual temperatures that they were using on all of that stuff. But I just thought I'd mention that, that Dr. Van Mirop is not somebody that we hear about a lot, but some of his stuff is in some really amazing pedigrees, and he is definitely one of the kind of pioneers in the early um, stages of success with, with green tree python reproduction in captivity, unquestionably. Um, definitely. So, definitely. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah. Yes, sir. Good to have you here, Patrick. Thanks, Bill. I'm excited to be over at your place here pretty soon. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. And I believe is is this Mr. Tim Morris? All right. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not Tim. <laughs> could be just could be just could be just a listener. It looks like his area code. I don't know. Uh, hi. Oh. Hello. Well. Hello. Oh, are you looking at six one nine area code? I am looking at six one nine area code. Actually, my I'm I'm just a private. Private breeder, I'm, I'm tight with Gary Scavino, but um, but I mean, are you guys going to talk about um, mustard lines? Because I can probably help you out a little bit with um, I'm sorry, mustard. Well, I can help you with mustard, and I can help you with um, the the like I got one of the original Tim Termezi animals. Are you going to talk about his high yellow line? Oh, um, I see Tim. Yeah, are you going to talk about that, Matt? I, I was, but uh, I'm curious to know. I didn't think there were any pure ones left. Oh, I don't know. I'm but not saying I have to tell us. I, I, was, I was there at the first show, I want to say 94, 93, 94, 95. I was looking at an old picture of mine when I had a website with um, Terry Phillips. And I believe um, that was in 98. So that animal was a three or four year old at that time. But I know I got the, one of the very first high yellow lines he ever produced. Um, it was a very interesting, you know, proposition at the time. Interesting. I, I, in, uh, is it a male or a female? It... The one I had was a male. Actually, what happened was I, I saw Tim at the show, a friend of mine and I. He, he used to um, exhibit there all the time. And, you know, he had he had his book out. And at that point in time, Trooper Walsh's stuff or Eugene Bissett's high yellow really wasn't well known, like, or it wasn't being produced very regularly. Um, and so the only high yellow I ever saw was this one. And he had his little scrapbook out, you know, and he didn't have the adult hair. And it was hard to believe, but I took, you know, my friend took a chance. He bought a pair for like, I think they were only six fifty, and so the female died on him. I took the male well, well into like its third or fourth month. So it, you know, we didn't know it would stay high yellow. Now I would tell you this: what I, my understanding from Tim was he he had that male who produced two two sets of or two sets of clutches. He had quite a few babies. My my animal stayed eighty five percent to ninety percent yellow this entire life. But what was interesting was at the very next show, Tim were selling off a whole bunch of females that had all turned green. So my impression was about 20 to 30% of those animals stayed high yellow. The rest just turned green. Yep. That sounds about right. 
Yeah. But at that time, that was the best deal around. So we were thrilled to get that stuff. But he had, he also had put his price up higher after that. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So did uh, I understand was, you still still have that animal? No, I, that that animal died. That that was that animal was from ninety four ninety five. No, that animal, I believe. Oh well, it's a tragic story on how that one died. Essentially, the story of that one, and they were on my um my website. I'm sure none of you guys remember this. It would have been Doctor Frankenstein's creation. So it was a long, long time ago. But um, and I, I got my first green tree. Do you really? I got yes, my I first green tree from. Oh, that's 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 pretty. Pretty impressive. I've never heard of anybody who remembers that. But um, but I got my first green tree python from Gary Sipperly, and he lived here in San Diego in 1988. And um, that was a, that was a, that was quite an experience too. But but what was odd with the high yellow was I had that male. I couldn't find a female to pair it up with. And then oddly enough, there was a guy who had a Trooper Walsh or um, you know Eugene Massette, I'm sorry, um, high yellow female. It's actually probably about 90 to 95 percent. Five years old, claiming it was a virgin. It was about ready to be bred. It cost me $5,000 to get that female from him in 98 or 97. And um, and I put it with my high – and it was more of a pastel yellow. The ter, the termazine line was a brighter yellow. Um, the only one that I ever saw from from the, the Eugene Bissette and um, Trooper Walsh was much more of a pastel color. But I put those two together. I got, I think, 20-something eggs. I butchered the eggs, but um, I ended up – that male died that year, um, and then the female I ended up trading off for seven snakes to, God, I can't remember his name. I want to say Sonny Ryu, something like that. And he produced, oh. for as far as I know, the very, very first clutch of high yellow to high yellow. Um, so it broke my heart the next year. He produced 20-something babies. He did offer me a good deal on it, but at that point I was, you, you get kind of, you fall in love with condos, and then you kind of break up with them a little bit over the years, so. Definitely a love-hate relationship. Yeah, they break they break your heart. Um, so you know, those, that that happens. I hate it when they die. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I, I love well, all the other, I love and, all the other. And and I and I will admit, in, in all honesty, if I believe it was my mustards. If you want to know my understanding or my knowledge of mustard chondro was I, I believe I coined that term. It's the first one I ever heard use it. But those animals, as far as I know, again, it's the same type of thing. I want to say they were produced in 93, maybe 94. But the ones that I got at the time were from two different individuals, two different sets of clutches. One was, you know, I got the male, I want to say, out in some guy in South Carolina. And then um, the female, oddly enough, and actually I could probably figure it out exactly when it was, the female that I got was right when Rich Eiley came out with um, Super Salmons. So I flew out from San Diego out to Arizona, bought $8,000 worth of um, Super Salmons, and and I already had a, I already had a mustard male, and that came actually from Gary Sipperly. So he didn't know he had really light li- a light line of green trees or green, but this one actually oddly enough caught green and then faded back to a mustard yellow. It was only like four years old, but I found another animal from the basically i assume the same clutch well not same clutch the same pairing but a year later and i spent eight thousand dollars on that trip with um rich eiley and now again that was the first year that he had those available and had him at a show and i flew out to his place 
and there was just some kid who had a pair of green trees. I saw him. I was like, eh, I just spent 8000 That's a lot. And then um, and then I looked at him again, like, okay, I'm going to buy him. And then one of them was a mustard. So it was a, it was a pretty pretty nice setup on that. My friend, but what is your I, name? I, I just went, my, my name is AJ. Okay, AJ. I'm Thank just, you uh, for calling in. We appreciate that. No problem. I, just, I want to sit back and listen and hear the rest of your guys' stuff. Sorry. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much. All right, unexpected but cool. Yeah, yeah. very cool, very cool. It's good to hear some some Sony. Uh, Sony was in Texas, wasn't he, Matt? Sony Rahu. I think I'm saying his name correctly, yeah, Raju. Yeah, he's yeah. up there in okay. Dallas. But I, I'm not. Sh- I'm not All sure right. about. Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, the breeding that he did. I know he, he, he did a little bit, but I don't know if he was ever successful with it. So I have to ask him about that. Okay. Pat, Patrick, let's get back to you for a minute. Um, sure. So uh, you came on, you gave us some, some, uh, you know, some good stuff, some history. Where did you yeah. see uh, like this episode starting? I mean, we, Matt, Matt kind of hit it off with some of the high yellow stuff. Um, yeah. I think, you know, I'm, we'd be, I'm going to take, take it all the way back to the beginning right now. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. So I've got a, um, an, an, an issue of reptiles magazine in front of me from, um, 1995, but it, it actually details, um, some stuff from the early seventies. So, um, there was a gentleman named Carl. I believe you pronounce his last name Switak. It's S-W-I-T-A-K. Um, he worked at the Steinhardt Aquarium at the time in, in San Francisco. Wrote a great and, book. Yes, yes. And uh, I believe it's like uh, Adventures in Green Tree Python Country or yeah. so, something like that is the name of that book. And yeah, exactly. I wish I had that in front in front of me, but this is this uh this issue of Reptiles magazine is probably just the truncated version that I needed. It's the cliff notes, right? Um, but yeah, so he went to um, Papua New Guinea in starting in 1971, specifically to locate and bring back a gravid female green tree python. That was his very specific purpose. It wasn't like they lucked into that or or he was just going to go look around and see what they saw. He specifically went over there with the permits and everything. So, and this is on the Papua New Guinea side. Like, we don't get anything legally imported from that side of of New Guinea. And uh, so he flew into Port Moresby, and the first places that they went were actually southern highland localities. But they ended up going up into the Jimmy region, which is a uh, that's on the other side. So that the mountain range that separates, you know, that what they some people call like the New Guinea, the watershed or whatever, the mountain range that separates that entire island north to south, and therefore separates the species of green tree pythons. That runs the entire length of the island. So the same way that there are northern and southern types on the on the Papua and West Papua side, it's the same way in PNG. So the Jimmy region is a northern highland mainland locality, and 
Um, he ended up going in 71, no luck, went back in 1972 and had no luck. They found green tree pythons in these locations, but were not able to locate a, a gravid female. And in 73, and his third time uh, going up there, they were actually able to get um, a hold of a gravid female. And I've got a, the actual picture of that animal in front of me right now, and it's just it's really badass. Um, she has the typical kind of Utarensis look. The looks like a, a Jaya or a Cyclops. Um, she was obviously a red baby, nice blue dorsal um, with a little white, you know, clusters um that line up with the with the dorsal diamonds and uh and she's full of eggs and stuffed into a a piece of bamboo which is apparently a a common way for these animals to be transported after they're collected whenever they're transported to wherever they're going to um to be exported but uh better than a better than a coke bottle i guess yeah well you know this, (laughs) this is halfway off subject was the first time I ever caught a rattlesnake. I was, I was 14 years old and I, I stuffed it into a 20 ounce water bottle, <laughs> but um, it, it didn't have to go across the world though. It was just getting driven 15 minutes down the road. Um, anyways, uh, but yeah, the, um, so this animal um, was brought back to San Francisco and when they opened up the package, when they got back home, this snake was coiled around a clutch of eggs. She had laid <laughs> eggs in, yeah. like, literally in her out and, yeah. had, and still had them coiled up. And they, they don't know if, if she laid somewhere on the way to, I believe it was Hong Kong. Um, or, um, and actually, I could, I could tell you... Um, yeah, he said it was either somewhere between um, Port Moresby and and, uh, and Hong Kong, or between Hong Kong and San Francisco. They have no idea when she actually laid, um, and so unfortunately, that's the end of the the first part of that article that I have in front of me. But what I do know is that they were able to hatch a number of those eggs at the Steinhardt Aquarium, and so those became the very first green tree pythons that were ever hatched out in, in captivity, uh, in the United States anyways, that's on record. Like who knows, you know, there's, I'm sure, you know, there's possibly other things, um, you know, that have happened that were not recorded, which brings me to the first two times that they were actually bred in captivity. Um, something that I have, said before I'll I'll name two things that I have said in the past multiple times and been and and have recently found out that this was actually inaccurate Um, I've gotten Sedgwick County Zoo and Steinhardt Aquarium mixed up before Um, SA and SCZ are the the acronyms we use for those and I thought that 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 um, that first clutch that was brought back was actually an SCZ hatch but it's it was not it was a Steinhardt Aquarium I also thought that Trooper was the first person to successfully breed green tree pythons in captivity in the United States on record, and that's also not the case. Um, the the Sedgwick County Zoo did it first, and Trooper was the first private breeder to hatch out green tree pythons. So um, David Groh 
messaged me yesterday, and he said that the hatch date for at Sedgwick County Zoo in Kansas was May 15th of 1976. So that was the first time that green tree pythons that were ever hatched in captivity that were actually bred in captivity in the United States. Um, wow, Sedgwick that's County Zoo has some really yeah yeah and and there's if you anybody is interested you can Google Sedgwick County Zoo in Kansas and a lot of stuff pops up about the history that zoo has an amazing history it was one of the first zoos to try to do um, like really awesome naturalistic enclosures they had a a big walk in like jungle display where they wanted people to be immersed in that experience and feel the humidity and have tropical plants and, and all of that stuff. So they were, they kind of um, were, were a cutting edge zoo and they were recognized for being the first zoo to produce green tree pythons and green and black poison dart frogs that same year. Um, so then, um, and there's, if, if we look in our pedigrees, um, some of us have pedigrees that go back all the way to, you know, um, to the to the 1973 hatching at the Steinhardt Aquarium, and then a lot more of the pedigrees that you'll see will have some of that um, Sedgwick County Zoo line stuff in there, and then almost all of the designer pedigrees um, will, you know, when we're looking at this blue line and calico and all that stuff, any of the OS stuff. That goes back to, to Trooper and to Al Zulich um, and, and then some of the other zoos. So this all started happening over a period of a few years. Um, in uh, 1977, and Tim Morris actually just told me that, let's see, he said he texted Trooper, and Trooper said if memory serves, it was March 31st of 1977 that he hatched his first clutch um, in captivity. Um, then in like 80 and 81 is when we started seeing some of the, like Dallas Zoo, Fort Worth Zoo, some of those zoos having success. And I don't have this information in front of me right now. We may have to touch on it. It'll, it'll probably be appropriate to touch on it when we get into Rico's stuff because Rico had a lot of PNG line stuff. And the PNG stuff all goes back to the Dallas and Fort Worth zoo breedings. And I believe they go that some of that founding stock was um, a combination of things that came animals that came from Sedgwick County zoo and also may possibly some confiscated animals um, that came in. Um, yeah, was, and yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if, if Tim is available, but we, that's the getting into the trooper wall stuff is a good kind of segue into the, the whole history of the, the blue line and, and which led to the calico line and all of that. Well, yeah, um, you have it doesn't like Tim is here. Uh, well, Tim's not here, but I think, no, I mean, that's all, that's all great stuff. Um, and the, the book Patrick referenced the sweet tack book is, uh, if you can get a hold of it, it's a great read. Um, you'll find it's, that, uh, he, he actually, when he he went into the bush to to get these animals, he actually uh, hired the local the indigenous population to help him find these animals, yeah. and uh, he had to do some negotiations with those folks. And a lot of times uh, he would they would bring him an animal, and he didn't want it, so they would just 
subsequently they would eat the animal. Um, but there's there's yeah. a, a lot of good stuff in there. But essentially, you know, the, what Patrick said, the, the Reptiles uh, magazine breaks it down to much easier read. It's a very lengthy, long book. I mean, you really have to like to read and read tree pythons. But, Patrick, I was thinking, well, do we – before we – do you think we should maybe talk about uh, – so Carl Sweetak, his background, he was he he was worked in a, a zoological institution, correct? Yes. Aquatic. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he oh, was, yeah. yeah, it was – was, okay, yeah, so. was at the – I believe all, all of that background is at the Steinhardt Aquarium. And if I remember correctly, actually, I think he says it in this in this um, issue, but – um yeah, I'm not seeing it in here. Uh it seemed like he he that that's going to that visiting that aquarium was what kind of got him interested in this type of stuff in the first place and then he ended up securing the job there, which is what led him to you know doing this thing, these travels. It's yeah. an incredible book and like buddy said, I if you can get your hands, it's a rare book. It's hard to find. Uh, it's an incredible book. It's well written, uh, and it talks a lot more about just green trees too. It talks about his experience yeah. with a lot of other different species, and really a lot of the. It's it's just very well written. It's written in first person, and it's it's an adventure. It's like reading an adventure book. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it says that he was originally employed at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. And he said in the 50s, he saw his first chondros um, because a gentleman from Australia sent a few of them to the Steinhardt Aquarium um, when he was still in school. And then he ended up, um, that's when he ended up getting the um, job as herpetologist in charge of the live animal or live amphibian reptile collection at Steinhardt Aquarium. Yeah, that that it's pretty interesting when you look back at the original original folks who worked with chondros who bred them both in a I guess a professional setting and also in a private setting. Uh, a lot yeah. of a lot of the folks that initially started with chondros had a very similar background. Um, can you talk a little bit about Trooper? What hit Trooper Wash and his background? Yeah, for sure. Um, I actually have <laughs> – I'm sitting here right now with a laptop and three phones and a stack of magazines in front of me, and I've got these uh, <laughs> the archives and these files. So I actually have an article in front of me um, that was written by Trooper. And, um, gosh, I'm not sure. Okay, so this was from uh, from a magazine in 97, um, and uh, – I guess, uh, he wrote this article. So um, he he had at that point um, been at uh, um, at at NZP, which is that's the National Zoological Park. That's basically the Smithsonian Zoo um, in Washington D.C. Uh, and in '97, he had been there for 22 years already. Um, and wow, this well. isn't in the article, but and maybe maybe one of you guys knows the answer to this um, for sure. But I feel like he was also well known for some early work with Komodo dragons. Correct. Um, that that is yeah, true. So, yeah, yeah, and I don't know um, I don't know a whole lot about that. I just seem to that's just something that kind of popped into my mind. 
So he said that um, he saw his first one in a private collection in 1975. Um, and there's some cool stuff in this article that I didn't know. Um, I'll make a little note on this first one because he says that it was a young female. It was green with uh, – he talks about the bright blue dorsal marking that stood out to him. The picture that I used when I posted the link yesterday for this show, I used that picture not just because it's a really cool picture of a really awesome snake, but because one time I posted that picture and Trooper commented on it, and he said she looked just like the female that – he said that was the look that got him into chondros, and she looked like – this animal that I'm referring to that was the first one he ever saw in person in captivity that, that kind of kicked off his obsession. And I think that's really cool because it's the same thing for me. It was Sorong's with a bold blue dorsal stripe that really got me interested. Uh, okay. And I can't tell you right. the number of people who said that exact same thing to me that that, you know, we look, we, we look at all these crazy designer animals and, you know, this is the stuff we're getting into and Trooper, was absolutely responsible for the foundation of some of the most extreme designer animals. Um, some of the high yellow stuff and all of the blue line and calico stuff exists because of, of what he did. But it was that classic wild type look of just a beautiful, you know, wh whether the one he saw was a Sauron or a Jai, obviously like a, just a beautiful classic mainland animal with a nice blue stripe. Um, and that that will always, even with all the stuff that I have and that I've seen, that's still always one of my favorite things. Um, so he basically um, went all in on this and sold off a bunch of his personal animals and, and said that he put basically all the money that he had into green tree pythons, um, which uh, I, I know we've – We've seen that happen before with people, and it doesn't always turn out too well. Um, right. And the thing is, it didn't turn out too well for him either. He got, according to this article, he bought approximately two dozen animals, um, with basically with everything that he had. And while he did, having those animals did result in his first breedings, um, he lost all of those animals within a few years. Um, wow. the, so the difference is that Trooper is one of us is crazy enough to keep going, um, despite, despite all, you know, all the, all the heartbreak, right? I think any, any of the, the guys who really stick with this stuff, um, you know, you have to be dedicated and passionate, but you have to be a little bit crazy and masoch masochistic to, to, <laughs> to really stay with it. Um, <laughs> Or, or Very really well said. jaded and cynical, or all, <laughs> yeah. all, all of that stuff. So, um, but yeah, so um, you know, he details some of the things I mentioned about um, Dr. Van Mierop and Eugene Bissett of Ophiological Services, and how they all kind of got together. And um, this is in. He, he mentioned some articles that they wrote about the the berms and the and the ball pythons with maternal incubation in 78 and 81. Um, so, you know, er, late 70s, early 80s is when all this stuff was really starting to rock and roll. The zoos were starting to get into it. I, I'm, I'm sure there was some contact between some of these guys. I know Dave Barker, for example, was working at Dallas Zoo, I want to say in 1980, so right around this time, and that's when they got their their first clutches. Dave one time told me 
that uh, I don't know if any of you guys have ever spoken to Dave Barker, but he's full of amazing stories. He told me in 1980 at the Dallas Zoo that he dropped a chondro egg from from uh, like counter height onto the floor and it rolled across the floor and he freaked out and looked around to make sure nobody was watching and just went and put it back into the pile of eggs and he said it still hatched. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, um, anyways, uh, yeah, so this goes on to detail some of the stuff that they um, – that they were doing with maternal incubation and, and with, with those, how, where they got those temperatures from and how they went on to use that to figure out how to, um, you know, how to do proper artificial incubation in captivity. Um, and a lot of this stuff in here is also just about the, some of the legal rulings, in relation to the importation of green tree pythons as, as wild caught animals. Um, you know, we know we all see all these wild caught come in, but it's technically illegal. Um, you know, they are, they're all labeled as captive, you know, captive bred farm bred when they leave the country. And it's, that's not actually a CITES requirement. The, the individual countries can choose to make that a requirement of the CITES two listed animals. Um, and apparently Indonesia did that and has never never gone back on it, despite the fact mm -hmm. that there are, you know, these populations are, you can do a sustainable harvest from these populations. They're not like, it's not like they're endangered in the wild. They're ex extreme, they're super right. common snakes in, in, in large parts of their, their range. Um, he also um, put some stuff in here that I thought was on, on that subject. I'm skipping ahead just a little bit, but he talks about, um, Frank and Cameron, and the, I, I didn't realize that that you know, I'm talking about Cameron of Bushmaster Reptiles, um, right. and Frank is who who owns um, Terraria, which is where the farm that M Bushmaster imports their stuff from. Um, they were really the first people to start breeding chondros over in Indonesia, um, and I, I didn't know. You know, it makes sense, but I didn't know that. I thought that was a really interesting note. Um, but going back to the the blue line that Trooper is so well known for, um, from what I can hey, see... Hey, Patrick. Yes. Quick, quick, quick question for you. Sure. So I'm, uh, if I'm new to, say, green tree pythons and uh -huh. um, I'm looking at a lineage... How would I know what what would I what are troopers breeder initials so I would know that there's trooper wash lineage in an animal? It's it's T W. It's just his initials T W. Um, we also sometimes okay. see see this line ref, referred to with the acronym of T W B L, which refers to trooper wash blue line. Um, but in okay. the um, in the pedigrees themselves it's going to say TW if it was Trooper Walsh. And I, I could be wrong about this, but from what I understand, uh, some of the stuff that says NZP on it, which is National Zoological Park, is also Trooper Walsh's stuff that he was doing at work as opposed to just yeah. at home. So, um, Okay. Because I mean, some of that stuff goes back that far, and he was working there, so it makes sense to me that that's that that's what that is. Um, so what else? So oh, and and so on the subject of the you know, so if you see AZ 
That's that's Al Zulich. And it it looks like it was a couple of animals that um that Trooper got from Al. Um there was an imported um an imported female and uh and Tim may be able to, to speak more on this, but there was an imported blue female and another and another like a normal looking male that produced for Al Zulich and from what I understand, Trooper getting a hold of a couple of those animals is what kind of laid the foundation for him to develop his blue line. Okay. So I think Tim is here. Let's see if we can bring him on. All right. Hey, Tim. It's Buddy. How are you? Good, Buddy. How are you? I'm good, Tim. Thanks for joining us. You want to quickly introduce yourself to our guests? Tim Morris. Condor person, I guess, or used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right on. So, um, Tim, give us a little bit of background about uh, how you're you're entwined in Condro history. Um, well, I mean, I guess my only real claim to fame would be producing Mr. Blue, I suppose, you know, in terms of, you know, I guess things that most people would know of, um, you know, and I had, you know, the, the great experience of being able to, um, kind of build my Condra collection from, you know, Trooper himself having, you know, met him back in the early 90s down, you know, at the zoo and such. So and we continue to be friends to this day. So that's been a, that was a, that was great on many levels. Hey, Tim, uh, it's Bill here. Uh, thanks so much for joining, but you really underplay your role in the history of, uh, of green trees and blue line in particular. Just the fact that you, you know, you you worked with and knew Trooper so well. You guys got you guys had a great relationship, and so um, I, I would love to hear uh, just kind of some uh, information that you have about Trooper. What did you see firsthand? You know, with the animals that he was working with and progression of of the Blue Line project. Um, well, truthfully, I didn't know anything about you know, the blue line, and I'm not so sure that, um, you know, Trooper really did at the time as much, um, you know, prior to, you know, Mr. Blue being uh, being hatched out. I mean, I do know Trooper had, had mentioned to me on a few occasions that, you know, one of the things he was attracted to were the maroon, you know, the brown maroon neonates, and that yes. he had a he had a feeling that the darker they were, the more special, you know, they potentially could become. And so, you know, he told me early on, he tended to hold back, you know, the darker ones, you know, in particular. Um, And so, you know, I knew the, um, the one litter, and again, some of this stuff he may not have told me, or maybe we had conversations and I, and I'd forgotten, but I do know that, the um, 
you know, the female that I had, she came from kind of a, what turned out to be a rather loaded bloodline. You know, she was, you know, litter mates to Joan Collins and um, Powder. And so. Epic Yeah, yeah. Now they were, you know, they were, they were all, you know, the females, you know, so there wasn't any, I guess at that point, as far as to my knowledge, there weren't any notable, I guess, blue males at that point or high blue males. You know, the blue, the high blue animals tended to be, you know, the females. And, you know, both Joan Collins and Powder were, you know, my opinion, uh, well, at least Powder, I remember more vividly, she was um, very blue. And I'm not sure if she was straight to blue or if she was hormonal blue. You know, my so-called you know, blue female, she, I mean, she was definitely more green, you know, prior to the first breeding and, um, you know, was definitely a hormonal blue animal. So, but again, I don't know that, you know, you know, Trooper had given me that the, the male that later became known as the legend male as a runt twin, um, the heat hatched out and, um, he was also, you know, a litter mate to the uh, computer chondro that, um, you know, eventually became, I guess, more famous through, you know, Greg Maxwell's work. And um, so that, too, was a pretty loaded line. Um, but, again, the blue male part of it, you know, or later became, you know, like the super blue stuff that later became, you know, more commonplace, I think, was, you know, was sort of, started I guess with with Mr. Blue and I think Trooper probably had an idea that the potential was there I had no idea um you know and oddly enough you know the female that you know my blue female was not originally mine um the uh, the animal that I bought from Trooper down at that same Orlando show that he gave me you know the legend male um I later traded him back for, you know, that uh, 4893, you know, which was the my blue female and the powder said, um, because I didn't want to breed siblings. Um, the original one I had, I want to say it was, oh, third, I can't remember what it was. Um, it was a, you know, the sibling to the, you know, to the legend male. Um, and of course, then, you know, the computer chondro. Um, but they were, you know, they were litter mates and I didn't want to breed them. So I was hounding Trooper to, you know, trade me and I would have taken anything because I didn't know at the time what all bloodlines he had and what their, you know, histories were and things of that nature. Um, but anyways, he wound up giving me, you know, that female in exchange. Um, and that's how I ended up with the blue female. Now that the, the original female that I traded him for the blue female um turns out that she was um i'm pretty certain if i remember correctly she was actually um head for for albino because that was the yeah that was the designer line that had that sort of albino gene right so um which i guess would have made the legend female also potentially carrying that gene as well although there was nothing that he produced that 
you know, would, would have confirmed it. But um, but I do know later on Trooper had hatched out an animal from that female. I trade he sold me and I traded back for the blue female um, that produced. A, I think it was either a dead in the egg or a, a hatched then died animal that appeared to have red eyes. So. Tim, so so um, what what was the first blue line? You said a lot of the blue stuff were female. What was the first blue male that you're aware of? Well, as far as I'm aware of, it was Mr. Blue. Okay. Um, I know there was um, you know, there was a podcast last year that Greg did with um, um the guy who does trap talk, and he thought that the um. Blue Frost was the first um, genetically, you know, or super blue, however you want to say it, blue male. But then I straightened that out because Blue Frost was born in the early 2000s, I'm pretty sure. And, um, Mm. you know, Mr. Blue, I think, was born, you know, hatched out almost a full 10 years prior. So, Wow. But he was the first one I know of. um, I mean, that's typically the first one that anybody has seem to know of i know trooper didn't know of any others that occurred prior to that so to the best of my knowledge that was the first one yeah his sire the the legend was just a a, just a pretty green animal with some nice blue dorsal markings he was nothing you know particularly special correct Mm -hmm. i love mr blue stories because um, I always think, you know, Buddy could have had that animal, right? Um, well, I guess he could have, yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of people could have had that. It was sitting on a local show table for about $1,000. Um, yeah. You know, but the, but the truth of the matter was, you know, was that at that time, you know, prior to that time, you know, the, the, the standard, so to speak, were going rate for, you know, the captive chondros were all 750. Um, you know, that was based on Eugene and Trooper's sort of standardization of their pricing for, you know, typical, and, you know, neos, and and prices went up from there. But at the time, the Mister Blue was was born, <laughs> you know, and hatched out. This was also the time when some importers started bringing in there was a big flood of imported you know farmed animals right and so yeah they were being sold at shows for two hundred dollars two hundred fifty dollars and so initially that really you know drove the market down in terms of pricing and i remember at that point in time you know a thousand bucks for a neo was just you know crazy talk you know, even 750 was considered crazy because a lot of people were looking at, you know, all these farmed imports coming in at $200 and, you know, like this is the way to go. Wow. Wow. Crazy so, stuff. It just yeah. it me goosebumps just to hear these stories. The, yeah, the yeah. So, I, I mean, ever... I mean, it, 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 it definitely turned out, you know, being something special. We didn't know at the time. I know. You know, Trooper was very impressed with it um, as a neonate, um, not not just for its darkness, but for its, you know, it was also one of the first ones, if not the first one I remember, with the reduced pattern as well. 
you happen to remember how many offspring Mr. Blue sired over, over time? I, I seem to remember that it was something like a 120-something, 130-something offspring total. Yeah, that would definitely be a Johnny Blue question there. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know when I sold it to him, you know, we bred it back to the blue female two years. Yeah. Um, you know, the hatch rates weren't great. Um, but then after that, Johnny and Trooper, I know, did a number of different projects with him. And and then even after that, I believe Johnny, you know, did quite a few with some other people. So, yeah, he he left behind quite, you know, I guess quite a legacy. Quite, quite a legacy, for sure. Although I don't know of a lot of his animals that are still around, or at least not a lot of, you know, maybe, you know, one or two generation out animals. I mean, I guess, but I yeah. haven't really been, you know, my, you know, my knowledge of the current, you know, status of all the bloodlines and everything is really not too, you know, too not too well versed, so. Yeah, I think there's still a few animals alive um, that are, like you say, a couple generations removed. Um, you know, I, I, there are, I believe there's still a few animals floating around that were, um, that are the offspring of Mr. Blue Carolina, um, the, the Mr. Blue Carolina pairing, um, but not, not a whole lot of that. But there are tons of animals that have, you know, lots and some other lineages have kind of like fizzled out or, or become hard, you know, harder to find. There are lots and lots and lots of animals floating around that have this general lineage, you know, in their pedigree. Right. Right. Yeah. Going back to, um, you know, the Al Zulich 14, 15 pairing and yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was thought to be one of the big, you know, um, you know, one of the big, I guess, the big contributors, I guess, that pairing was a big contributor. And obviously the trooper mm-hmm. was a very important one because it was, you know, repeated, you know, or, or, you know, animals within that were produced from that pairing were then bred together a couple of times. So you can see that, you know, pairing a few times in some of the lineages. Guys, yeah. we're moving yeah. uh, moving. Uh, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're moving quickly. Um, I thought this would be a really good time if Tim just has maybe a couple more minutes to stay with us. We haven't touched on Greg Maxwell, and we haven't touched on the computer chondro and the calico line stuff. So maybe we could evolve uh, the conversation in, in, into that area. I can I can make a quick note on that and then just kind of see if, if Tim has something to add. Um, I think a lot of people are not aware that, that how directly tied um, the calico line is to the blue line um, because the, the original calico animal um, that, that they call the computer chondro um, was, you know, a, a sibling to what, um, gosh, I've, I've got that laying around somewhere. I'm, I, I'm, it's escaping my memory right now, but he was uh, maybe a sibling to the legend and Aqua Girl. Well, he was a litter mate, yeah, I believe so. Mm-hmm. He was definitely a litter mate to the, you know, to my male. Yeah, it's amazing. So it's, uh, it's amazing because um, 
phenotypically they look so different. Uh, yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, a I, lot I of like... you know um, diversity in that in that in that bloodline. Like what came what came out of it. And so, okay. So how did Greg Maxwell get involved with that? With that he, line? Yeah, he purchased. Um, yeah, and I don't know a lot of the specifics in terms of what he did with it. Um, I mean, I used to know a lot of that back, you know, back when, and it would have been nice from a historical perspective had Greg left that website up because it had a lot of, you know, great information there in terms of, you know, the historical, you know, uh, historical context of a lot of these bloodlines. But, um you know, Greg started out with his uh, cage master cages, and from what I understand, was into either colubrids or boas of other sorts. And then, I guess, in the mid '90s, um, shifted his focus to getting into green trees. And um, <laughs> he would quickly, he would seemingly make himself available during. Well, he would be at many of the local shows, you know, selling the cages, and whichever ones the trooper was at, he was always uh, sort of delivering trooper any cash they made from the cages and buy more troopers animals. <laughs> so he wound up, um, well, you know, the forward that he, I guess, trooper wrote, I guess, in, in Greg's book about how, you know, he, he funded troopers retirement wasn't far off. I mean, he spent, you know, a lot of money, you know, with yeah. trooper in those few years and, and pretty much utilized that whole transition to, kind of wean himself out of the caging business. You know, he stayed into it for a while, created some arboreal cages, but then slowly weaned out of that, got out of all the other stuff, and and pretty much just focused on the, you know, the green trees there for a period of time. So I just pulled up a little bit of information on the on that, um, on the uh, Calico. Um and apparently what it says, I think this is Greg Maxwell's own words, I think. Um, he first saw it at the, the National Breeders Expo in Orlando. Um, yes. And and uh, then I think a couple of months later, uh, the Mid-Atlantic Reptile Show, uh, he saw Trooper again, and he still had it for sale. And uh, he was asking around $4,000 for it, I believe, at the time. And uh, they negotiated for a little while, and he got it down for to to three thousand five hundred. <laughs> yep, thirty five hundred bucks. I remember that. Yep. What did yeah, it look like? Richmond. He he bought a lot. What did it look like at the time for thirty five hundred dollars? Is it start? Had it started to change? Oh um, yeah. I mean, I, I, there was a. Uh, what was that picture? I think that picture might have even been in Greg's book. It was a picture that it I actually is. took of a. Yeah, him yeah, down, down in Orlando, right where he was changed. Um, wow. You know, all the different colors. Wow. Yeah, wow. And the the first um, calico clutch. You know, the most of the the most extreme animals that we see within the calico lineage have calico junior in their pedigree. And um, so I'm looking at some of this stuff right here. So um, uh, the computer chondro was uh, clutchmate to, to the legend, which is the sire of Mr. Blue and the aqua girl. And Greg bred computer chondro to his sister, to aqua girl, to produce Cal Jr. 
And that gotcha. was in yeah. that was in ninety nine. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. And is and is that when the term calico was first described, or did he describe it with the computer chondra? I I think that that was around the time, but I, I don't have Greg's book in front of me, and I should. Um, but I believe he started calling it that, and then once you know, once he was able to actually reproduce that phenotype with with Cal Junior, um, is kind of what set that off. Yeah, and the so computer chondro thing may have been um, that the computer chondro name or nickname may have been started. Um, because I, I, there, there's something in the back of my mind that tells me that there was there was something to do with something like a, a cash and a computer part of the trade for that animal initially. Oh, really? So the, so the computer chondro, the computer moniker, the computer chondro moniker may have been tied to some some you know chondro collateral being used in the in that acquisition. You know, truth at the time was very much into technology, and I know that um, part of the sale, you know, just to kind of divert from the computer chondro to another well-known male that Trooper was known for, old Yeller uh, and and Patty Pants uh, that Buddy Getzker got. Buddy Getzker, I think, paid cash and computers, you know, about twenty-four grand, I think, for that. Um, and so, you know, I. I'm pretty certain that that there might have been some technology that also came along with the cash and the and the and the calico, you know, computer animal. Wow! Wow! So I'm very interested. Never heard that before. Yes. Yeah. yeah well, again, I mean, that that, that may or may not be true. So it says here that uh, the term calico was uh, did he did apply that to that first animal uh, after after a little while. He started, he started collecting a few more that looked similar, but uh, he decided to use that. He decided to use that term calico on his webpage. Yeah, I knew he dropped the, the computer chondro part of it for calico later on. Uh, guys, I, I had a question, um, and and Tim. Obviously, we would love for you to hang for the rest of this episode if you need to go. Uh, we understand for sure. Um, but I did have yeah, a question about one of the names. Okay, great, great. I had a question about one of the names on the um, list that Buddy sent out, John Holland. I don't know. I don't know the significance of John Holland to early Green Tree. Well, John became the owner. He's the one. He's the one I sold Mr. Blue to. Okay, so you call him John Blue, Johnny Blue. Well, that's what he went by. He has a. Um, his main business is the uh, design, construction, and maintenance of large-scale saltwater tanks in commercial settings. And okay. so um, he has a company name called Blue Region. And so when he obtained, you know, Mr. Blue, um, then, you know, we started calling him Johnny Blue. Okay. All right. That puts, that puts so, a lot of pieces yeah. together. 
Yeah, Johnny. Yeah, that was Johnny his name Holm. on the on the old uh, on the MVF too on the original forum. That was his uh, yep. his name on there was Johnny Blue. Oh wow! Right. You know, and then one person that I don't think that we have talked or we haven't talked enough about on this on this episode uh, first part episode is Rico. We can Man. have you know. And, and we have had like a full episode on Rico. Yeah, but that's what I was about to say. We could do a whole episode on Rico. I mean, who, who wants to give the, you know, the five minute spiel on Rico and what he did uh, with all of this stuff? Uh, I can I can give a, a a really quick overview, but I do think it's something that we should probably revisit because the time span that that Rico was producing green trees goes all the like you know I think his first clutch was in 91 um and then you know all the way up until 2013 he was producing animals so it, it and and so he he kind of was doing this across the span of time that a lot of these things were happening that that we're talking about um but Rico was first of all an amazing person um he was just Rigo was just awesome super nice and super helpful guy um always willing to to you know give his time to people he 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 had a you know hands free on his phone and he'd be in there working his his contro rooms while he was on the phone helping people out and uh Rico was the most successful breeder of green tree pythons in with the exception of you know, maybe um, Terraria and Danny Gunnelin's operations in Indonesia, they may have cranked out more numbers per year during certain time frames. Or they, well, they, not, not maybe, they certainly did. But overall, um, Rico was the most successful breeder of green tree pythons ever. And he worked with literally everything. He had, he loved locality animals. He had t- every locality you can imagine. Um, I don't know what his biggest numbers were. I don't know what his biggest production years were. He he added animals that he acquired into his same number system for ID numbers. So it, it was hard to tell exactly how many he was producing. But his, his ID numbers got into the 200s on a lot of years. Um, and I remember... Uh, one particular time that I was speaking with him on the phone um, that he told me at, at, at that point in time, he had something like, I want to say that he said he had like 450 chondros um, when I was speaking to him that particular day. Um, but yeah, from all the way from 1991 to 2013 and Rico um, passed away from brain cancer in 2014. Um so 91 to 2013, he was just, he, he was, he, Rico was it, man. Um, he, again, he was doing better than, than anybody else was just super consistent and worked with so many amazing lines and produced so many amazing animals. Um, and uh, again, I think we should probably, uh, dedicate more time to that because I can get into a lot of the ways that, different lineages tied like how he tied together some of these different things there's a lot of stuff that um the vinsky stuff and blue line stuff and high yellow stuff and the tiger stripe line that he 
originated. There's just so many pairings that he did that were that were pivotal or important for for things that we were just you know that we're seeing now. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot, you, lot more that could be said. You guys all interacted interacted a lot with Rico. He, you know, I did not. Unfortunately, I was lucky lucky enough to meet him at ICAST. But why don't we just take like a minute, Matt? Why don't you, why don't you give me a few minutes about like what you remember most about Rico, or, or how you think he was, you know, the most influ- influential in green trees? Uh, well, I got my my second green tree from him. Uh, it was a sarong. Um, uh, that that was pretty much the only um, conversations I had when I was when I was getting that. Uh, super nice guy. I mean, more than, I mean, he would give you his left arm if you had to. I mean, he was just very helpful with any kind of information that you wanted. Um, the um, the rest of the time, that was just, you know, email um, conversations about lineages or about this locale or that locale. Um, I, by far, by far the, the best mentor that I had um, as far as learning the ins and outs of green trees. Um, just a yeah. wonderful guy gone way too soon. Yeah, I think probably hundreds of people would have just said what you just said. You know, they that he was their mentor. You know. Yep. Tim, what about you, man? You know, I too have sort of a limited um, um, interactions with with Rico. I mean, I certainly. We we talked a lot in the later years, in the earlier years, not so much um, because we just weren't in the same place at the same time. But um, but he did a lot early on, um, a lot more than say, you know, Trooper Eugene and such in terms of you know putting information out there for the general public. You know, I don't know if you recall, and I still think I have a copy here somewhere, but he put out you know, like a care manual, you know, for green trees. You know, I have it in front of me right now. Yeah, if not, that was probably late 90s, right? So, um, or maybe early 2000s, but that was one of the first things that came out, you know, about, you know, for the general public, you know, in terms of how to maintain or keep these things, or at least how he, you know, recommended doing it. He was one of the first to come out with, you know, information related to, you know, feeding and uh, how to deal with problem feeders, you know, and this was way before YouTube University and everything. So, um, you know, so he, he really did a lot to try to push, you know, the knowledge base of, of beginning keepers, which was really good. Yeah, this, um, um, this says copyright 1995, second edition 1998, and revised in 2002. Go. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, from a very early time, you know, he put out, um, you know, stuff. So he was always super gracious with, you know, sharing information, um, helping people out. I remember talking to him down at, um, uh, I believe it was Daytona at the time, and he was telling me about how, you know, he really loved the designer stuff, but one of his main you know, focus levels with chondros were the entry-level chondros. And he did a lot, you know, with, like, some of the early, you know, um, uh, locality pairings and such. And just, 
you know, sort of the quote-unquote run-of-the-mill type chondros. And, um, you know, did quite well with them. Yeah, the, the vast majority of the stuff that he sold were between 450 and 750 That was kind of his standardized pricing for, for the, right. almost all the condos he sold. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, if there was – as hard as it is, I think if there was, you know, one person that you had to say that was, uh, you know, just – most responsible for where we are now or just a great ambassador to green trees to the reptile community, it would have to be Rico. You know, yeah, at least in my absolutely. opinion. At least in my opinion. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh buddy, of course, you know, um I want to hear your thoughts on Rico. You knew Rico, I think, fairly well. What what do you have to say about Rico Walter? I mean, uh, I'm, I can't add much more about his who he was as a person. I mean, everyone's already kind of touched on it. He made time for everybody. Uh, he was he was willing to walk you through things, give you advice. Um, and when I was, you know, starting the Condor journey, uh, there was, a, and I frequented the for, the forums, particularly the Morelia Viridis forum. I would this person would post and, um, you know, whatever this person would say, everyone would take his advice. And it was, uh, you know, it's like whenever, whenever he made a post, everyone paid attention to it. And, he, and Rico didn't post frequently. And then I kind of made the connection that this was the person that actually uh, ran Signal Herpticulture. And Rico's um, breeder uh uh, initials were S H, so it was it wasn't R W, so it was S H. Um, and it, just looking at his website and just seeing all the stuff that he was working with, uh, and like Patrick said, he he worked with everything, um, and the way he cataloged his animals with photographs kind of I think set the standard for a lot of other folks as well with the way he. Uh, Photographed an entire clutch and represented the parent, had the parents represent it. But he, you know, he was really a, a, had a huge impact in our hobby, but he wasn't one of those folks that were, that was outspoken or very demanding. I guess he was kind of like, I don't know, gravity uh, in in the Condor world. You know, his presence was Absolutely. always there. It was but quiet and powerful, I guess is how you would say it. Um, yeah. he, you know, people could have some very heated discussions and Rico would come in and just explain his, what he thought about certain things or, or what his opinion was on, on, you know, a particular part of husbandry and, or a locality animal. And it would, it would kind of quiet everything. Um, and he really, when we did ICAST, which is coming up was, this year, will be, it's going to be 10 years since ICAST happened. He was okay, really instrumental in, in <laughs> I don't know, Tim. <laughs> uh, maybe. We'll, we'll see. Um, but, yeah, we, uh, should, we should talk about that. You know, I was talking to Mark Twig about, re, you know, redoing the uh, St. Louis Symposium. So maybe we'll, we'll combine the two and put it somewhere. Right. Right. Well, ICAP so was kind of uh, continuing what you were doing with that, Tim, with the Arboreal Symposiums that you, were, you yeah. and Mark Twig were doing. 
So, um, Rico instrumental is brought that up. No, 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 that's fine. But Rico was very instrumental in, in that, and it actually kind of became the you know we were going to make sure this event happened because we wanted the community to come together to um, recognize Rico. One of the things we did at ICAST is we we recognized the Rico, Trooper Walsh, Eugene Bissett, um, and a couple other individuals in, in the Condor community for their essentially their their contributions to the community at that point in their life. Um, and so we were really motivated for Rico uh, because of his, his health issues that he was having at that time to, to, to pull this event off and to make it happen so he could be a part of it. And he was. And so I guess that's that's my best memory is we were able to pull it off and Rico was actually able to attend uh, the event and, and be there and be part of it. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm going to say, I'd like to say one more thing about Rico. Um, cause I, I actually, I've got to go. So I'm going to leave you guys with this. Um, buddy, I, you, you, you started that by saying you didn't think you could add anything more, but you really added some, some really important stuff, um, that we didn't mention. Um, the first being that, you know, Rico is one of the first guys to like, uh, be photographing the entire clutch and the parents and the process and and all of that um and he he certainly certainly was um you know one of the people who was really bringing all this stuff to where you know putting it in a, in a like a comprehensive way where people could see it and understand it and kind of normalize and demystify it a little bit and sure. um and you also said that he was kind of the like the voice of reason right i mean we you know we all call him called him lord walder and um <laughs> I, the the thing I want to say about him is that um, he he did that for me one time when I was having my first clutch, like I had my first gravid female, and it was a Kofi Al female that I paid a decent chunk of change for, and I was freaking out about all, all the things, right, all the details and all the things, and I called Rico and I'm like you know, just babbling about all this stuff. And, and Rico said, he said, Patrick, they're just snakes. Stop overanalyzing it. And, uh, and I, I still overanalyze it and they're not just snakes, but I knew exactly what he meant. He meant you've been doing this for a long time already. They're just snakes. Calm down. It's going to be okay. (laughs) Right. And, uh, um, and, and and it was, and I got a hundred percent hatch on that clutch, like I said in the very beginning, and haven't done it since. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, man, he he was really that. He he was just so good at. He never got into the drama. He was so good at staying calm and 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 simplifying things and making it just. Um, it's so instrumental in making it what it is and, and so many people being able to, to do this and enjoy this hobby without killing their animals. Very true. But yeah, anyways, all right, guys, I'm sorry. I got to cut out too, a little bit uh, early. Yeah. We're going to close it down uh, anyway, Patrick, but we will, okay. we'll get with, you, we'll get with Matt um, for part two. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I love you guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, We'll see you next time. Thanks, Bob. All right. Thanks, Patrick. All right. Well, Matt and Tim, thanks for both of the same last name, but not no relation. 
Um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thank you both for uh, uh, taking time out to join us, and um, we'll we'll pick up part two. There's a we I don't know, Bill. This might be uh, this could be several several parts because we're, we're uh, kind we, of we, scratching the surface. It can, hey, it can go on, um, yeah, multiple, multiple episodes. I got uh, yeah, one more thing right. to add to all this, uh, the history. Um, I think yeah. that um, we should mention um, Rob Worrell in this as far as, I think, I believe he is the first one to document uh, chondro ovulating. And I believe he was also the first one to do uh, eggs in a cooler, incubating them. So I just thought I'd throw hmm. that out there. Yep, we, we, we'll definitely we, we'll, we'll, we will visit Rob. All right. Yeah, let's let, let's roll uh, Rob in into the uh, into part two. Awesome. All right. Thank All you, right. Pat. Thank you, Tim. No worries. Thanks a lot for having me. Yep. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Thanks, anyway. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks, Tim. All right, Bill. We'll uh, we'll we'll work on scheduling part two. And uh, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, enjoy your Sunday evening, and uh, stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks, buddy. All right, Bill. Have a good one. Tim. Yeah.